0: Father, we recognize that we've come in here for multiple reasons. But I pray that the center of our heart right now would be that it's all about You. The focus of our thoughts would be that we would learn from You and that Your Word would indeed speak to us. Father, we've asked You to wash our eyes in this prayer request of a song that we would be able to see You for who You really are. But God, I would ask beyond that that you would help us to see who we really are. The redeemed of the Lord are before you, and we're asking that you would speak to us, that you would refresh us, and where you need to, to correct us. So God, use your word now. Come with authority and power as your Holy Spirit broods over this auditorium. Use this setting, Father, in which we are aware that the Spirit is present. To speak truth it 's in Jesus' mighty name we would ask this and god 's people said, Amen. How about if you uh, take your Bibles if you have them with you, and open up to Hebrews chapter four if you didn 't bring one with you you 're going to find them in the uh, racks in front of you there in the, in the area where you 're seated, and if you 're not familiar with the Bible um, Hebrews chapter 4 is uh, page 1003, that would make it easier for you. It's going to take us a minute to get there um, because of a few things I want to do to help you understand the direction of this. So Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to be picking up at verse 12. Occasionally, um, a sentence is spoken by people in, in history in such a way that it's remembered generations after that person has passed away. Even more rare are memorable phrases that make it into written documents, things like this from Aristotle. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit, all the way back in 330 B.C., and yet someone found it important enough to write it down and say, that's significant, we want future generations to remember that. So sometimes, communication is so significant, we even etch it in stone so that it will be remembered, and especially rare are those things that are communicated that are so substantial that we teach them to our children, and our children's children, like this one. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty And dedicated to the proposition that all men are created. See, somebody taught it to you too. You know. It was taught to you by someone who went before you. Those things are so significant that we teach them to our children's children. But rising above all of these, above every word that has ever been uttered by humanity, is the word of God and what God's word says is final. So when we look at God's word, Isaiah 48:40 40, verse 8 for instance, God says this about his word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, that's a remarkable statement, even more so look at what God says about himself in verse Isaiah 55:11. My word which goes forth from my mouth It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. See, only God could say that. There's words that I utter all the time that don't accomplish what I want them to accomplish. I tell my dog to sit, it doesn't sit. You you order an egg McMuffin at the drive-thru window and you end up with a sausage McMuffin. The words that I utter don't accomplish always what I want them to accomplish. But God says every word that I utter. Everything that I speak will accomplish what I set it out there for. That cannot be said of humanity. Now, since the beginning of time, mankind has known of God's Word, but hasn't always heeded God's Word. One of the earliest examples is back in the book of Genesis. And we're going to go to Genesis 3 momentarily right now, and then I'll come back to it in a moment. But I want you to see an example of God's Word being uttered. This is Genesis 3, 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Verse 10, this is Adam responding. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. What's going on there? The voice of God, the word of God, was uttered in such a way that it was forcing Adam to come to a realization of what he had done. Uh, If you're familiar with this story, you know what's happened. Adam has already disobeyed. He's already consumed the fruit. And God's calling him out on it. So God's Word is uttered and it's exposing something. This is what God's Word does. It exposes the heart. But perhaps you've never heard this before. God's Word enables the heart. God's Word exposes the heart for what it really is, but God's Word enables the heart. You might say, well, how does it do that? Because the Word enables us to see who we really are. It allows us to examine ourselves. So the penetrating power of God's Word acts in this way. In His Word, we see who God is. And in His Word, we see how God sees us. But here's the third thing. In His Word, we also see ourselves for who we really are. And I would call that the great unmasking you're going to see it in Hebrews 4.12 this morning. God revealing to us who we really are. And I want you to not be afraid of that unmasking. Because there is power in the midst of that unmasking. It's experienced because God enables us to be honest with Him. And that's what God welcomes. We're told that He receives worship that is very pure when we worship Him in spirit and in truth. And truth is Honesty. It's the unvarnished truth that he welcomes. Last time we were together, we were in Hebrews 4.11. I'm going to invite you just to let your eyes drift up there to that verse for just a moment. Because it says this, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. So the writer of Hebrews was making this urgent plea. Be really careful that you don't throw away what God has offered you. So he's saying, be diligent. Why? Because if we're not diligent, then we're following the example of those people who went before us who were not diligent. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The Israelites in the Old Testament who came right to the threshold of the promised land and God had made commitments to them and promises to them and they chose not to believe. And because in the midst of their unbelief, they ignored God, they lost out on everything that God is offering them. So the disobedience that verse 11 is referring to is this disobedience of unbelief, meaning a failure to take God at His word. I'll, take up, I'll talk about that in just another moment, but what they really failed to trust was the good news. What's the good news? Look with me first at verse 2. Go from verse 11 where your eyes went to, drift up further to verse 2. You'll see this one on the screen. Hebrews 4.2 says, For indeed we have had good news preached to us. Just as they also, the the they is the Old Testament Israelites, but the word they heard did not profit them. The, The word that was preached, notice it very, very carefully. He's calling that one out. The word is God's word. And the word that was preached to them that did not profit them was because they didn't believe it. What word? That I love you. That I will care for you. That I will forgive you. That I will be merciful to you. That's what God said about himself. And they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that God was on their side. And so they grumbled and they wanted to run back to Egypt. Why? Because Egypt was safe. They got three square meals a day. They at least knew even if they had to work hard, they were going to be taken care of. And God was asking them to go into risky territory. So they began grumbling. They didn't believe God. So what we're discovering in Hebrews in these first nine weeks so far is that unbelief is really on the front burner. The unbelief of God's Word. Let me give you some examples here from Hebrews. Think in your mind back to Hebrews 2.1 and what we learned there. Pay much closer attention to what you have heard. Well, what have you heard? The Word. Hebrews 3.1 Consider Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the Word. The word is spoken through him, and then Hebrews three fifteen. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Well, what could you harden your heart against his word? Now, this is all set up to verse twelve. So let's look at what God says about his word in Hebrews four verse twelve. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions. Of the heart. So, the, just to be really, really clear, the Word of God, when it's referred to in the Bible, is anything that God utters. So, in the Old Testament, it's what God said through the prophets. In the New Testament, it's through Jesus. We learned that in week one when we looked at Hebrews 1 1. Look at this. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and in the prophets, in many ways, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. Now it tells us in verse 12 that God's word is living and active. You know what that speaks to? It speaks to his power. That his word is alive. How did God create the universe? Let there be. He spoke it into existence. The power of his word. So this is really speaking to the power of what God does. Everything that God does is life. God speaks life, not death. So this is not some dead letter. It's going to vanish away. It brings life to us. Charles Simeon, all the way back in 1833, said this, It lives in the utterances declared from heaven. Millions of ages cannot cause it to be forgotten. It is never depleted of energy or in the least weakened in its force. Everything that you and I know grows old. Everything that you and I know decays. The cars that you maybe drove here in this morning, they're going to end up on a rubbish heap someday. Somebody's going to melt the metal down. The shoes that you walk in, they're going to burn. The carpet that we walk on, it's going to disintegrate. It just does. It, it decays. But what you hold in your hands this morning, do you know that it's eternal? God said his word will never go away. L- look what Jesus said. Matthew 24:35: heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Michael shared that with you just a few minutes ago. Why is that important that God's word is eternal? Because when Jesus says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, one day you're going to join me in eternity, I don't want that word to go away, do you? No, absolutely not. So we want to know that God's word is eternal, that it stands secure. And then we're told in verse 12, this word that you have in your hands is sharp. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Now, he uses that context in the first century because all they had was the sharpest blade known to man was the two-edged Roman sword. We might say a surgeon's scalpel, that it's sharper than a surgeon's scalpel, but no matter how sharp a scalpel is or no matter how sharp a two-edged sword is, it's not as sharp as God's Word because we're told it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Nothing can penetrate like this does. See, God's Word is unique among all other words. Nothing penetrates like this. That's what makes it so unique. Look how far it penetrates. Verse 12, piercing to the division of something. That tells me there's a dynamic quality about God's Word. It does things. It causes things to happen. Look again at Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Now, in the context here specifically, it penetrates. It penetrates to the core of who we are. Here's an example for you from Acts chapter 2. Peter's speaking to thousands of people. They've gathered for a celebration known as Pentecost. And they begin listening to him, talking about the Word of God. Look what happens. Acts 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They heard the Word. And it resonated with them, and they were pierced to the core. And they said to Peter as a result, and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Now, in the context, because the word is alive, and it's not stagnant, it's constantly active, it pierces to the core to see if belief is real. Now, think back with me what we've talked about through the book of Hebrews. We've got a group of individuals who have received this letter. They're watching their friends being dragged to the Colosseum. Nero is using them for nightlights. They're tempted to run back to Judaism because Roman law sanctions Judaism. It doesn't sanction Christianity. And they're tempted to leave what they believe to be true. And so we're told that this word goes so deep, it looks to see if the belief is real. To the depth of the soul and the spirit, according to verse 12. See, in the Bible, the soul is the seat of emotions. It's that thing that functions around the mind, what causes us to think the way that we think. So he specifically uses this word suke, or we might pronounce the word psyche. I didn't put the definition up there with it. I just put the word up there because the definition is pretty complex. But when you think of a verse in the Bible that says, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the pride of the eyes, the pride of the spirit, it's talking about the soul. You might want to write down First Thessalonians five twenty three in your notes and look at that later, because it speaks of the spirit and the soul as these entities. The psyche and spirit is pneuma, and these two things, which are corruptible in an unregenerate person, are corrupted. So the soul is that component of us by which an unregenerate person is completely dominated. Dominated by the thoughts of their flesh, dominated by what they see with their eyes. It's the pride of life that Scripture talks about, dominated by their emotions. So here's what the author is saying God's Word will reach so deep that it reaches down to that which would otherwise dominate you, those things in the seat of your emotions that might control you otherwise if God's Word wasn't present. So, next phrase that it uses in verse 12 is so deep, it goes to the joints and the marrow. Your translation might say bone and marrow. Either one is correct. It, what's what the reference here is to is not biology. It's not what it's talking about. The, weird, the word pierces to the external and to the internal. Uh, there was a butcher that was here during the Saturday night service who came up to me after the service, and he said, you know, um, a surgeon's scalpel would never cut through bone. I could see why he used a sword. He said to take a sword to get through bone, to get to the marrow, a scalpel would never cut through bone. God's Word will go that deep. Well, let's just agree, God's Word penetrates very deep, correct? We would say it goes so deep, it's like a sword through really tough, hard layers. And what does it do when it gets there? We're told in verse 12, it makes judgments or discernments about your thoughts and your intentions, that's kind of scary, isn't it? That it actually discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So what I hold, if I have a deep, dark secret that I think no one knows, we're told God knows because God looks at those things too. Now, I want you to understand just so you're not living in fear of that word judgment of the thoughts It's not judgment as though pronouncing a sentence judgment. Here's the way the word is used, and it's a Greek word, kritikos. It should be in your notes this morning, but kritikos is decisive. It's discriminative. It's a discerner. I wanted you to understand the difference because this is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. Other places where judgment is used, it is speaking of pronouncing a sentence. But here that's not the case because he's speaking to believers, individuals who have a temptation to not believe and trust God's word. So kritikos is the root word for the English word critique, and it means to assess something. So if I'm a collector, let's say, of rare baseball cards, and I take my baseball card collection to someone to evaluate it for me, to tell me what it's worth, the person that I hand it to, I wouldn't expect them to condemn it, if I asked them to discern it or judge it, I would ask them to critique it to determine what's good and what's bad. Well, that's what we're told this word does. Criticus, it goes to the core and it determines what's good and, and what's bad. What is the thing that shouldn't be trusted? What is the thing that should be trusted? And so that tells me something really, really powerful about God's word. It tells me don't think that we're going to be able to bluff our way out of circumstances with God. Don't think that we're going to be able to concoct some story or create some secret or hide something from him. There is no clever story. There's no untruth that will stand before God. And in context with these Hebrews, he's dealing with the issue of unbelief with these people. They're hiding something they think in their core. I want to tell you the truth, what I know about unbelief. It has 10,000 methods by which it will approach you throughout the course of a week. Some of you have encountered it this past week. And I'm not talking about unbelief in Jesus Christ. I'm talking about unbelief in God's promises for your life. It shows up in various ways and it justifies to us, to our conscience, the reason for its actions. Here's what it sounds like because it it whispers to us, "Your, your only hope of true happiness is to have blank. Your only way to keep that guy is to dress a little more provocatively. Your only way to keep job security, don't speak up about that illegal practice you see going on. Your only way to retain your dignity is get revenge. See, unbelief creeps in that way. And it causes us to distrust God's word. Those statements are a lie. It's asking you to believe something contrary to what God says and not believe His word. And here's the real problem with those unbelief statements they lodge themselves very, very deep into our thoughts and into our intentions. And they seem so true at the time. And so that deception begins to build a shell around our heart, and it becomes a deep, dark casket. To the degree that we think that we're hiding something and we're, we're keeping things out. And you might not have ever heard this description before and you might be thinking, well, how do I escape something like that? Well, you need something incredibly sharp. You need something incredibly powerful to penetrate the deception and the, the lies. Well, That's what the Word of God does. The, the Word of God saves me from the deception of those lies. That's what God says. It'll shine a light. And it brings an intense light. Ultimately, this is the question. We have to ask ourselves, are we trusting God and what He says about us? Or are we trusting the lies? And are we believing those lies? Because God only accepts the unmasking of yourself when you come to Him in truth and you be honest with yourself. Verse 13 really speaks to this. Pure honesty, Let's go there. Verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's kind of like disrobing before God. Anybody here really, really like the way you look in a mirror? See, I didn't think I'd see any hands, because not many people do. Especially the morning mirror, right? We see ourselves at our raw best. This verse is talking about being nude before God. Matter of fact, the literal Greek word here is nudity before Him. It, it means God sees everything. The impossibility of hiding anything from Him is completely known to us now. We look at verse 13 and we're told we're naked and exposed to the eyes of Him. There's nothing that's invisible from God. I want to use Genesis chapter 3 just briefly. To show you how God's word works in those circumstances. Because this encounter with Adam should be a life lesson for us. Look with me, and you'll see it again on the screen. Genesis 3 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Verse 10 Adam speaking, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Verse 11. God responded, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? What's going on in verse 9? Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? God's word is bringing conviction, and it's forcing Adam to deal with the reality. God's word has been spoken, and now Adam's got to deal with the reality of what he's done, so look at his feeble attempt. His only possibility is to answer with some kind of an excuse. I, I... I... I'm naked, so I'm trying to hide myself. I'm afraid. But your God goes right to the core of the reality. See, God doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't look at Adam and say, you know, fig leaf is nice, Adam, but you might want to pull it up a little bit. God doesn't do that. God goes to the core of the issue. What's the core of the issue? He's forcing Adam to deal with the reality that he's been deceived He heard the temptation. Adam, God's trying to keep things from you. He knows that in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will be as God. God's trying to hide things from you. He knows that you will see. Adam believed the lie. Adam didn't believe God. He trusted in the lie, the whisper of disbelief as opposed to the word of God, which said, don't eat of it. So Adam hears this, and he recognized he's deceived, and as a result, what did he do? He disobeyed, just like Israel, just like we do. Now, I want to help you with this word exposed, and and how you see in Hebrews 4.13, this one last word we're going to focus on. In Hebrews 4.13, it says, we're exposed to him. This word has a very specific meaning and it was only used rarely in the first century and for two particular reasons. I'll I'll explain those in just a moment. But depending upon how you personally view God this morning and how you see him over you will greatly determine how you view this word exposed. If you're a person this morning who sees Genesis 3.9 and sees this, then the Lord God came to the garden and said, Adam, where are you? You might view the word exposed as though God's this dictatorial person waiting to smash you. But if you hear God, the God of grace, as Gary spoke about last week, coming to the garden saying, Adam, where are you? There's a whole different tone there the diction, the intonation depending on how you personally view God. So let's talk about this word exposed for just a moment. The two distinct uses were this. First of all, it was used in an athletic competition. It was used in a wrestling match when one opponent was achieving a victory over his lesser opponent. At Nearly at the end of the match, the victor would reach for the throat of his victim who was exposed and would pull his chin up to expose his neck. Now in that situation, you have to get face to face with an individual. You have to be up close and personal. Now here's the other way that it was used, and it was used in a criminal trial. Always used of an individual who was a convict. Not someone who was on trial, but rather someone who had been found guilty. And before sentence was pronounced some worker in the court would bring a leather strap device and put it to the chest of the convict with a metal blade, a knife, pointing right up through the chin, forcing the person to keep their head up. And if they lowered their chin or tried to, it would go right through their chin into their mouth. And so what it did is it exposed the neck and forcing the person to be exposed to those who were in the courtroom or in the streets when they paraded them through the streets because what they had done was exposed themselves. They had committed a crime. Both uses are really severe. And they're momentous in the situation because they're in face-to-face situations. They can't deny the reality of what they've done. Now, when a person comes under the all-seeing capacity of God's Word... We are unavoidably face-to-face with the perfect truth of who our God is. See, the Word of God enables us to see God for who He is. And then we're face-to-face with who we are. It unmasks us. It shows us for what we really are. Equally, at the same time, in the eyes of God for who He sees us as. True sinners in need of a Savior, but a God who's willing to send a Savior. See, it greatly depends upon how you look at this word exposed, that God exposes things for a purpose. So we're told in verse 13, to this one whom we must give account, because in the end, here to tell you whether you believe it or not, we will all give an accounting before God. Believers in Jesus Christ, you will not have to stand before the white throne of judgment in fear. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're covered with the blood and you've been made white and holy and pure, and you will not be accused or condemned. But all will stand before Him. Why? Because God cannot be trifled with. So this combination of verse 12 with verse 13 makes a powerful reason for heeding verse 11 in what he said. Be really diligent that you don't throw away what God has offered to you. Why? Because the Word of God is alive and active. It analyzes perfectly. And when it comes to you and I, All the makeup's removed. All the disguises are gone. We're just dealing with the core of who we are. It seems really important to me to end with God's Word. And so I go back to the book of Isaiah, last part, verse 22, from chapter 45. This is your God speaking. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. So if God said it, is it true? Is every knee going to bow one day? Matter of fact, in the New Testament, we see that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God Glory to the glory. <laughs> oh, you guys got to help me with this. Jesus Christ... <laughs> Whatever, Lord. Thank you, Michael. Well done, Bible student. Here's why I wanted you to see that. Every knee will bow, but don't miss verse 22. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. That's our God. I want you to know that Hebrews is a tremendous encouragement to me. You may not be feeling like that this morning. You might be thinking, Mark, you just talked about blades to our neck and being smashed like God shatters a rock. How is that encouraging? Be of good cheer. cheer. Here's why. God's Word is alive. And it's active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it will penetrate deeper than any deception the power of sin has over you this morning. That's how deep God's word will go. And it reveals to us what is truly valuable, what is truly worth trusting. And here's what's truly valuable and truly worth knowing God sees you naked, and He loves you anyway. He can see what's at the core of who you are. Even those things that you think no one else knows, God knows. And when you come to him in honesty, completely unmasked, you're not surprising God by saying, I did blank. God says, I know. What took you so long? See, so you're not hiding anything from him. And he's gracious and merciful to forgive. That's what he tells us in his word. And his word cannot lie. So I would encourage you to be encouraged this morning. God can see you. God knows you. God loves you. In spite of yourself. Let's pray. Let's pray for the people who were in the previous services. Let's pray together for each other. I'm going to pray out loud. You pray along with me that God will make this truth real to us this week. Father, our time together has gone very quickly this morning, but momentously, I know you have used your word through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, and you've spoken to someone, someone who's dealing with an issue in their life, and I don't know who it is, but you do, that your word will speak life to them, and it will speak love to them. Thank you, Father, for revealing truth through your Holy Spirit. God, I ask for each of our three services, for those who have been here, That this will not quickly fade from their mind, but that they will recall that in the midst of our darkness, you saw us, you know us, and you love us anyways. Thank you, Father, for a word that is alive and that is active and that is eternal. Thank you, God, for bringing conviction, as hard as it is. So, God, I ask that you would translate all this knowledge into boldness, that we would willingly and freely speak to others who need to hear the same truth. Send us out now, Father, with your blessing. We would ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.